Welcome to Tribe Talk, where we focus on the topics that will help you improve your mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. I'm Dr. Elena Villanueva, and helping people improve their mental health is my passion. I'm Ann Hutira, and nutrition is my passion. Together, we invite you to be a part of our tribe and learn how addressing the root causes of your symptoms can bring you improved health and wellness. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the next hour of Tribe Talk. Hi everyone, Dr. V and Anne here today. Welcome, welcome back to Tribe Talk. We're so excited to have you here as we have an incredible human being here with us today, a very, very special guest and, and uh, someone who Anne and I have recently met. Her name is Cole Whitty and um, we absolutely adore her. She is helping make changes for the better in people's lives around the world. Uh, welcome, Cole. We're so happy that you're here with us today. I'm excited to be here. Any opportunity I have to spend with you and Anne, I'm all about it. So, Well, thank you, Cole. And you know, we're going to talk about a, several different things today. And, and so let's dive right in. You know, a lot of people are dealing with this situation right now of being stuck at home and how that has sort of disrupted a lot of lives. We're going to kind of dive into what it means to hold on to your power, how someone gives their power away, how you can regain your power and exactly what that means. But a lot of people right now at home are finding themselves feeling fed up with being stuck at home. Maybe their work environment has changed. Maybe they've lost their job. Maybe they have the kids at home now and they're just frustrated. And, you know, a lot of this probably applies to the women who are listening because, you know, traditionally we're seen as, as you know, the ones in the household who take care of everyone. And, and in a lot of ways, I've talked to a lot of women nowadays who feel a little bit lost with everything that's happening in the world and what their role is. And they find themselves being frustrated at home, feeling like they can't take care of themselves like they used to. Are you seeing the same thing? I know you're a wonderful, amazing coach and you work with a lot of men and women. Is this some of the same things that you're hearing from, from your clients? I mean, definitely, right? So when you look at just a traditional lifestyle, when we have things happen, we have losses, we have stressors financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, health, whatever, it's already stressful. And so the question starts to come are we reaching a point of distress now? And from what I'm seeing, we absolutely are. Um, we're, and my biggest concern right now is what we're going to see maybe another four or five months from now, um, which is going to be you know, more depression, more anxiety, because we are hardwiring a belief system right now of fear, just because we have been bombarded just over and over again. And so it's understandable that people are concerned, afraid, over it, burned out. There's, especially if you're consuming most of the media, which I am not, I only follow up with things in written language now and only from certain sources. So it's not to get bombarded by the same imagery that creates anxiety, to be honest. I mean, anxiety is a feeling of fear of the future. Depression is when it's things from the past we're still holding on to from my perspective and from the work that we do. And 
the frustration I'm seeing, I mean, I'm seeing it at the grocery store, I'm seeing it in traffic, and we don't even have very much traffic in comparison right now. So the general underlying angst of, I think everyone is feeling depleted, uh, restricted, and overwhelmed and stuck in what to do about it because there's a lot that is very much out of our control. So I would especially say that anyone right now that's very type A needs to be in control is really having a tough time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been seeing that too on our end with the clients that we are, you know, bringing into programs. And then, you know, even those who we're just, you know, having initial consultations with, um, you know, who have not, um, decided if this is the right time for them to jump into a program or not. There's so much anxiety. And, you know, especially with those who are already struggling with some anxiety mm -hmm. and depression before all of this started, it's like this was the camel, the straw that broke the camel's back, rather. Like that's what how that saying goes, right? You know, it's just too much for them. And, yeah. um, and it's like, it's like their frontal cortex is just totally shut down and they're in the state of fight or flight and they can't rationalize anything right now. And, and that's why I'm so excited to have you on so that we can discuss, you know, so that we can dig a little bit more into, mm -hmm. you know, um, that, you know, anxiety is fear of the future. Depression is, is, you know, fear of the past or, you know, you know, not being able to move past that. And maybe what are some tools that we can use? And, and maybe even before we get into the tools, we can jump into, you know, um, maybe even go a little bit deeper into, you know, how that's actually affecting um, people and their relationships, um, people in, you know, as they're trying to make decisions for themselves, we're finding oftentimes that a spouse is kind of getting in the way of that. And like that individual isn't holding the boundary for themselves. And, you know, I have a really, um, I've noticed over the years that I don't always find the softest, most gentle words to say things. What I'm feeling just comes right out. And, um, you know, I have, I have found myself um, sometimes in conversation with, with some individuals who are wanting help, you know, wanting a program, but they say, well, my husband's not being supportive. I'll just come right out and say, well, you know, no one's going to take care of you, but you, you need to hold your boundaries and do what you need to do, regardless of what your spouse wants, because he obviously, or she obviously isn't caring enough about your health. But, you know, I feel like there are probably different approaches that can be said to create more of an invitation and an open door. And I realize that what I'm saying doesn't always create an open door. And I would love for you to be able to talk around that um, so that, you know, those who are listening, who maybe, you know, have had conversations with us, who maybe do want help, but they're not able to, you know, keep their boundaries strong and, um, and do what they need to do, you know, how can we communicate that to them in a different way that creates more of an open door? Well, firstly, you said a lot there as far as um, layers and levels and elements and aspects. And it's one of those things that's really simple to say, and it's not that easy to implement. Maybe the, the, uh, the thought patterns around it are very easy, but the complexity and intricacy of humans and emotions is vast, right? And so let's bring a little bit of context of not only what I do, but how I 
got into what I do, just because my, there's parts of my story that are very pertinent and will answer some of these questions in a way that I think is really palatable and easy to receive. So I'm going to take one little fraction of my story, which is my health crash, because that is where I learned that boundaries directly correlate, or my lack of boundaries directly correlate to my health. And I think this will bring a little bit of, uh, make it a little bit clearer to, to describe, because like I said, it's kind of a complex thing. So the shortest version to get it to where we can contextually understand where, how I got to my health, where it was, I had trauma as a child. Uh, there were assaults against my sexuality from uh, extended family members. That caused a lot of shame and guilt uh, because I grew up Mormon in Utah. And because it started the week after my baptism, I immediately internalized something is bad, broken, wrong, I'm ruined. And I carried that with me very deeply, became an at-risk youth by the time I became a teenager, substance abuse, overdosed into a coma, a violent rape at 20 that ended me in the hospital, all sorts of things, right? Things that are textbook, unfortunately, unfortunately, because then we can help people. Textbook case of trauma as a child or certain times of activity, activity and how I internalize them. So by the time I hit 26, my health completely had tanked. By 26, I'd had an ovarian torsion, endometriosis, fibromyalgia, um, a 40 degree curvature of scoliosis in my spine, arthritis in my right knee. I'd had like 24 broken bones at that point from various like freak accidents. Um, I identified as having a terrible immune system. If someone even said they had a cough, I would say I'm gonna get it. So my entire existence was wrapped around in being chronically ill from various ways and chronically injured because uh, the simplest form is there were parts that believed I deserved it because you get what you deserve and if thing from the cosmology I was raised in. And if you get what you get deserve, if good things are happening, that's what you deserve. If bad things are happening, that's what you deserve. And so to deconstruct the vastness of what can lead someone to being chronically ill or to being unwell or whatever, however you categorize it, you have to look at boundaries. Because if we weren't taught boundaries as a child, right? It's like on one hand, we're taught don't say, you know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. But we don't explain that in enough detail for a child to be able to differentiate what is not being nice and what is telling our emotional truth in a moment or our trust or our really identifying uh, our safety. But we're also telling children from a very young age that someone else has governance over them. So when you're a child, it's adults and teachers, you learn government and police and all these things outside of you. That it's no wonder by the time we get in our 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, most health crashes that I see, the first one, there's usually two, the first one um, is typically between like 28 and 38, somewhere in there. Um, that's generally when someone realizes they're leaving a life that doesn't, they're leading, maybe leaving too. <laughs> usually, leading a life that does not resonate for them. Um, they followed the path that their parents or society deemed was what successful people do, right? Doctor, lawyer, engineer, or shame to the family. Those are your options if you want to be successful in life. And 
you go to college, then you get married and you have the kids, the house, the dog, the car, the picket fence, that's, that is the American way. And so for many people, that means that I'm going to go get my, uh, I'm going to become a physician. And I'll tell you that most, because we work with a lot of physicians, most doctors that we work with have still not emotionally or physically recovered from residency because of the habits and things they developed from residency, um, seriously sleep deprived, stimulants to stay up, you know, stimulants of all kinds, um, emotionally have to shut down because I just can't deal with it right now. Um, then afterwards, if they're setting up their own practice, whatever. And so the no boundaries thing is pretty hardwired into us actually, physically, emotionally, spiritually, because if you're in residency, you don't have governance over your body, you're in survival mode. So we're hardwiring people to be in fight or flight all of the time. So by the time they hit their late twenties to mid thirties, adrenal crashes are like the number one thing, thyroid issues, hormone imbalances that show up as all sorts of things, as you all know. And I say you all, maybe everyone listening, but for sure, uh, the two of you know what I mean. So until we recognize that there are habits and beliefs that have become hardwired into us that make us unable to first bring awareness to where we're lacking boundaries and then create boundaries and then communicate them. But the step, the first step is awareness. First, people have to be aware that look, I know that you're a mom. I know you've got your kids and their activities and all of these things. However, if you're reliant on caffeine to get through the day and then you can't sleep at night, so you're taking something to sleep at night, whether it's ambient or alcohol, doesn't make a difference. You're putting a chemical impact on your body to get it to wind down. And so you are not actually getting to a rest state. So the first boundary is getting clear with yourself and what you're participating in and what's depleting your emotional, spiritual, physical energy. That includes the foods that you're eating, the beliefs that you have spinning in your head on a daily basis. I don't have enough time, money, resources, love, um, considerate people, whatever the case may be. So it's not really a surprise if we then try to change those dynamics that when we communicate it to a loved one, they don't get it. Why? We typically attract someone that thinks more similarly to us than we do. So when you go to change outside of that dynamic, it makes everyone uncomfortable. I used to be a personal trainer in New York City and I had clients lose 200 plus pounds naturally. And inevitably, when someone goes on a weight loss journey, if they are in a couple, the couple does not last if the health does. It's just you change as a person as your boundaries change and what you're willing to tolerate, which often means if you're not growing together, you're growing apart. So the boundaries conversation has to be pulled way, way, way back to first identifying what is a boundary. Because for someone that's never even had boundaries, they don't even understand what that question refers to. So that's kind of saying a lot of things that for myself, until I started to recognize boundaries like, okay, I'm finally going to start working out again. I'm going to go hard. I'm a thousand percent committed to this. And then I overdo it the first day. 
That's not on honoring a physical boundary for myself. That's not staying present in where I currently am. And it's another self-destructive pattern to keep me from moving forward with that goal because deeper underneath that there was some part of me that could blame my bad knees in air quotes for not being able to work out. And the first question I had to start with, with boundaries, are my knees bad or am I being bad to my knees? Your diet matters with inflammation, understanding how fascia and tissue and musculature works so that you're not just putting it on a doctor to try to fix where a regular doctor is not going to see anything muscularly when it could just be literally a knot in your tissue or scar tissue or adhesions. So my step one boundary was things like that. If I'm going to work out, I'm committed to starting at 15 minutes the first week and see how I feel. I should be sore. I should not be incapacitated. Like I shouldn't be two days in bed or not being able to sit on the toilet. Yes, you should be sore, but there's a difference between having good stress, like a eustress, and bad stress or dysfunctional stress. So starting first by identifying the boundaries with yourself. Is your boundary like, I'm not going to eat after 9 p.m.? because I typically go for ice cream or candies or chips or you know mindlessly eating. That is a boundary. So it's that internal process first. If I try to just start giving boundaries to other people, I'm not following my own boundaries. So how likely is it going to be that I'm going to be able to have conversations if people are not upholding my boundaries? So that was kind of a lot to explain, but I think it gives us some, con you know, some position that we can go to from here and how it relates from the internal experience to the outward experience. I love how you're um, kind of uh, drawing this, this out for us to really kind of give us an idea on the whole concept of boundaries because, <clears throat> you know, I can tell you from personal experience, no one taught me boundaries. Nobody mm -hmm. taught me, why are we not taught boundaries? Why do our parents not teach us that? You know, not understanding uh, boundaries um, can cause, can wreak so much damage and havoc in your life. Um, and, you know, as you're saying this, I'm sitting here realizing like, I'm still learning boundaries. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I think I kind of did it backwards. You're, you're showing us how to create those boundaries internally and then work externally um, because I've never had a teacher or a mentor. You know, now I have you as a coach. You know, for those of you listening, you know, Cole is, is, is one of my coaches and and, uh, and her husband, Ta, is my other coach. And, and I find this, you know, in, immensely helpful for me in my life as I continue to grow because I, I didn't know my boundaries. And as I created boundaries, I kind of did it backwards. And it's working, but it's yep. going to work even better as you, you know, guide me and show me how to create more internal boundaries because external boundaries, I've gotten really good at saying no. Um, it doesn't make me feel bad at all to say no to somebody. Um, I know that I can give more of myself and do a better job now that I have boundaries of being able to say, you know, no, or when I can't do something and when I know that I can and want to, but on the internal side, I had talked to you about that a few weeks ago, how I'll go to work out and I'll work out so hard that I end up getting literally like a fever for like two days afterwards. And I feel so bad. I don't even want to go back to the gym. And so this is going to be really great for you to, uh, I, I love this part of the conversation, you know, so keep going with this and talk to us more about this. You know, I wanted to, can I just really quick, I think it's really powerful the way you put, um, 
you know, talking about internal boundaries versus, you know, outside boundaries and having to set those internal boundaries first. A lot of us don't realize that or don't differentiate between the two. And in this current situation that we're in, where a lot of us find ourselves stuck at home all the time, a lot of my mom friends have been dealing with what they call mommy guilt. They've made, they've coined this phrase mommy guilt, where they're just feeling guilty about everything, about having their kids at home all the time, not doing enough activities. Their kids are saying they're bored, so they feel guilty about it. They feel guilty about not working out anymore, about picking up, you know, takeout too often and not cooking all those home-cooked meals. That isn't that, that in itself is a sign of not having your internal boundaries where they need to be, right? It is, and what is fueling that is something that we talk about a lot in our work, and that's what we call the shame device. So there's guilt and there's shame. Societally, we use shame and guilt to manipulate and get people to adhere and perform. We get it from religion, we get it from school, we get it from parents. Now, it's not that anyone is doing something wrong. We see things as functional or dysfunctional for what purpose, right? And that's always the question for what, or in, compared, in comparison to what. So when it comes to something like shame and guilt, first let's distinguish the two in my cosmology. Guilt is that you've done something wrong. Shame is that there must be something wrong with you or broken or bad. And most people, their core wounding, they feel ashamed about. If they're not doing good enough, if they aren't making enough, if they aren't playing with their kids enough, if they're not present enough, there is something bad, wrong, or broken about them, but on a very like deep, deep level. And in how that individually stays there varies. At the end of the day, this is what drives most people. And especially with high-performing entrepreneurs, most that we work with, and we're talking seven to nine figure, okay, in various health space mostly, um, or coaches, mentors, the two most common childhoods as far as environment that cause someone to end up with us, at least, is either a high-performing father who gave accolades for high-performance um, and gave significance and love for high-performance or took love away if high-performance wasn't achieved, or alcoholic abusive father or father figure. So emotionally absent. Those are the two most common childhood environments. Now let's dig into why could that be? Well, if a child is not getting recognition and love for not doing it right, they are doing something wrong because there's something wrong with them. They're not doing it good enough. So it starts from a very young age, building this belief that in order to be worthy, I must perform. In order to get attention, I must do the right thing or the good thing. And that can come from religion too, right? That's another angle. So we've already got the parental construct, the family construct. So whether it was grandparents, foster care, whatever, you have the adults that were supposed to be or were the parental units, we'll say. Then you have the construct of religion. And in religion, we're taught right from wrong. So we are getting that very like binary, linear, black or white, this or that. You have to choose who are you. So if you're not good, you're bad. So that really supports that shame and guilt thing. 
And then we have the idea of what it makes a good family. And that idea, this is speaking for the context of like mom's guilt. Then we're watching television shows of what makes a good mom. Now, most of us will say, we'll at least say people born in the 70s and 80s, just for simplicity purposes. We are raised to seeing television shows where there were more women working. You know what I mean? There were more women out in the workforce, had a job, that kind of thing. But even in film, in magazines, the media that we're taking in, plus the religious construct, plus hearing your family say blood is thicker than water, we're all we have, we are there for each other no matter what, and then not seeing the behaviors match up with these very simple um, beliefs or these very simple structures. And the truth is most of it in domestic violence, um, malestation, sexual assaults, all of that happen in the home, right? So there's a whole other just like completely uh, traumatizing and confusing existence for most children because it's like, wow, my uh, father beats the crap out of me as an alcoholic, but he still tells me he loves me, so it's okay. He didn't mean to right? One child's rationalization could be, he just lost his temper. I love him. It's okay. But then growing up as an adult, they don't draw boundaries with violence because they have conditioned themselves to see past it and not draw the boundary of, I will not tolerate being touched that way, right? So when you start to look at all these different angles between what makes a good wife? Well, a good wife is someone who has dinner ready for her spouse, um, gets the house clean, right? We have a lot of these like patriarchal injections since we're little and you start playing with dolls and people are like, oh, you're going to be such a good mom. And then you're watching people and you're like, oh, that's a good mom. Oh, I liked, um, you know, on the Brady Bunch, I liked how she was a mom or I watched on this, I liked how she was a mom, whatever the case is. So we take on another lens. So all of these are creating different lenses that we are perceiving the world through. We don't even realize that all of these subconscious programs are running in the background all the time, and we are comparing ourselves to these images and lenses that we've created. So then we are usually not feeling enough. Why? Everything around us has helped us create an image that would be impossible to meet. Because then you're also going to be the successful doctor and have the successful practice. And then when you miss your kid's game, you feel like a terrible person because you're not a good mom. But if you spend all this time with the kids and your practice starts to go down or you're not getting enough hours or whatever the case is, then you're not a good doctor. So then it's pressing on that construct. So the, the first thing is recognizing that who could live up to any of those things? simultaneously. We really can only master one thing at a time. Now, that doesn't mean that we should. It means that by looking at everything that we're doing and finding self-compassion, starting to change the dialogue we've got running in the background, which means first becoming aware that we have it. You might hear your father's voice in the background that when you go to take a test and you get a C and you were all, you know, let, let's say now you're in med school and now all of a sudden you're getting a low grade when you've always been a high achiever. There's some part of you that's hearing your father's disappointment that, you know, 
you didn't really do the best that you could because you went out with your friends for dinner on Saturday night and had you stayed in and studied, this wouldn't have happened. So it's this constant judgment running in the background of not only from our parents, from team coaches we had as a child, from teachers, whoever we decided was an expert for whatever reason still runs in our back, in our unconscious mind. Then we have our conscious mind too. And then we have our kids saying like, you're a bad mom. I wish Susie's mom was my mom, right? They've already created an image of what makes a good mom. And now you don't fit it. So house of cards crumbles, right? I have never heard a mom say that they didn't care if their kids said that. Maybe they got good at not internalizing it, but they still very much felt that. So to really be free. And when I say be free, be free to me is a physiological experience that only comes from a psychological freedom. So even when I was trying to resolve all of my medical conditions, which I have, I've been off all medications for nine years. I Now if I get pain, I know it's a signifier of something. And I've journaled and diaried and learned the supplementation. I know when I'm magnesium deficient based on how my body feels. I can tell through my cycle if I am depleted in something because I had to journal and diary and track and get experts and study and become the student of me, of my body, of what do I want to create. So, right, when it comes to getting your power back, I have never seen someone get their power back without drawing some boundaries. And like you said, Dr. Veeb, just by learning to say no is drawing a boundary for yourself too. It's saying, I'm not going to tolerate overextending myself to my own detriment anymore, regardless of what someone thinks of me. This for my health emotionally or spiritually is a necessity. This is no longer a want. I want more time. I want to go spend more time with my family. It became, this is my priorities and this is how I'm going to facilitate having them. And that's going to require saying no to some things because what I'm doing is saying yes to me and putting priority on what's important to me. That's super so powerful. That a lot. Yeah, no, that's, that's super powerful. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, what's going on, what kind of dialogue is going on on a subconscious level or even a spiritual level that is preventing some of these, you know, individuals who are coming to see us who want help, but they inevitably don't step forward. Um, and, and, and they'll tell us like, I'm so frustrated. I really want to do this, but my husband isn't supportive of me. You know, what's going on underneath? I would love to really get a better understanding from you because I just can't tell you how frustrated that I get, um, you know, as, you know, as just a human, not, not from a coach coaching standpoint or from a doctor standpoint or from a business standpoint it has nothing to do with that. There's something very personal that gets triggered in me when we have someone who is suffering with Parkinson's symptoms or major anxiety or depression or their autoimmune is worse than ever. And we find answers through the testing. We'll actually find and show them what's going on. And a lot of times their spouses won't even get on the call to actually see it. Like 
they're not even interested enough to get involved. And then on top of that, you know, they won't um, allow their spouse or they're getting in the way of their spouse just signing up for a program so that they can get better. There's something very internally that triggers me. I feel so upset about that. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's because I've been sick. There may be other stuff, but I would love to really get a better understanding from you what might be going on on a subconscious level that these women are not just stepping forward to do what they need to do for their own health. I mean, I can make some appraisals, right? I could, I could assume through some of my own personal experience and working with however many people at this point, I've been in varying types of transformational empowerment, health work for, this will be my, well, I guess uh, like January next year will be 20 years and I'm only 37, but I got into work at 18 years old after my coma from a drug overdose. So even though I was starting to work and understanding why people were getting addictive behaviors, um, I didn't understand the impact that had on my health, even in being in that work almost 20 years ago. Like if you go back and Google on YouTube, I was on the Montel Williams show 20, almost 20 years ago. So I've been talking about these in things intellectually for 20 years. I didn't understand these things until four years ago. So just, you know, just to start it off there, until you understand what it feels like, until you can feel what being pain-free feels like, or at least slide that scale from a 10 of discomfort, pain, or exhaustion to a seven or even a six, no one can even conceive that what you're saying is accurate or possible. So when I started my journey, um, I was in pain all the time, all the time. And the day that I finally decided that I had had enough and no one was getting in my way, I had to hit rock bottom. As my, uh, my husband's father used to say, it's nice to want things, right? It's nice to want things. What are you gonna do about it? And usually when someone says, well, I want to, they have not hit the bottom yet. And unfortunately as humans, we rarely take action until we do. And as much as I would love to change that, Dr. V, and I know that Anne would love to change that, and we'd love people to step in and just see the difference, give me 90 days, give me six months, commit to that year, you will not be the same person that you are right now. Not in a year, no way. I don't care what medical condition you have. Doesn't mean we can turn back all of the medical elements, but I assure you on a mental level, you will feel more free, which will translate in the body, right? So for me, first of all, usually people haven't reached that point. Um, I reached that point. And the day that I reached that point, I was in my first marriage. Uh, I was in a marriage that I really wasn't interested in, but I thought maybe I was wrong. Maybe I should just marry this nice guy and be real, right? Do the house, the car, have kids, get the dog. And so we had gone to Disneyland with my in-laws. And at this point, I was about 50 pounds overweight. And I say overweight for me. Not everyone would have looked at me and thought I was um, significantly overweight, but it did not function for my body. I was about 175 pounds and I'm five foot eight. So that's not crazy structurally, but for me, that did not work for my body and the diet primarily. And maybe the Magnum bottles of wine or the Ambient to sleep or the rock stars to wake up or maybe the fast food. I don't know. Could have been those things too. And being in a marriage that 
I didn't want to be in and was not functional. So maybe some of those things contributed. <laughs> so we were at Disneyland. I'd been walking around for maybe three hours. And my knees got so swollen, I couldn't walk anymore. I was 26. I sat down on the ground and I just started crying because I was like, if I have kids someday or I want to, I can't even walk for three hours at Disneyland. How am I going to chase kids around, let alone hold on to a pregnancy, the weight of the pregnancy, and then afterwards, I can't even take care of myself physically. So I was feeling all of the future projections of my future, my reality, crumbling because it was like, I can't. And to be in that like full embodied hopelessness, I had a decision to make. I'm either ending it or I'm going to do something about it. There was no longer an option of doing something a little bit because I was to the point that I watched how my grandparents aged. And even though they made it to their 70s and 80s, um, they didn't age gracefully. So if me at 26 is at this point, then what will I look like 50 years from now, right? That's what I was thinking. And that was not an option because the way that I was perceiving I was deteriorating with age, I would be where they were by the time I was in my 40s. So it came to that make or break. What are we going to do about it? So when I was at the airport, I saw a book called Clean by Alejandro Younger, right? And it's all about detoxification, juice protocols. It's an elimination diet overall. So you do elimination, um, you know, eliminating various foods over a couple weeks. Then you do basically liquid foods for three weeks, low inflammation. And then you go like three weeks back into it, something like this. I might be misspeaking it. It's been 10 years. Um, but it was something to this effect and or 11 years, 11 years, 2008 math, you get the picture, whatever. It doesn't matter. Not a mathematician. <laughs> so, so as I read through this book, I decided, cause I'm very big on synchronicities and timing. So I decided this is what I would do. Went through the elimination protocol, followed all of it, but I couldn't afford the supplements. <clears throat> so I was working with what I could work with, right? The supplements were like 300 bucks a month, didn't have it. So I just followed the protocol to the best of my ability, but committed to everything that I could do. I didn't focus on what I couldn't do or say it's not going to work unless I do it fully. I identified what I could do and just said, I'm going to do all of this and see what happens to the best of my ability. And I followed that to a T as far as like the food and the recommendations and all of that stuff. Um, by the time I got three months into this journey, I'd lost 40 pounds and it was significant, but I looked like a different person. Like I didn't even, my skin looked different. Um, I looked lighter emotionally, energetically, spiritually, right? And as I started to feel better, my marriage started to fall apart. We were not on the same quest for self-discovery self and personal empowerment and vitality. And until, so going through this process, got my pain and my discomfort from a 10 to a six, 
significant, right? I tell people 60% of my healing came from my diet, 60%. That's massive. So the thing is with food is it is the fastest way to get results, like more immediate results in your heart. And you see it, you have proof that it's working. That other 40% is past experiences. And when I say trauma, that doesn't mean rape and child molestation. Trauma is how you interpreted events. You could have seen a car, a dog hit by a car and that deeply imprinted in your physiology. So your fear of loss or your connection to animals comes up and is very filled with triggers, right? So your childhood events, um, your belief systems, where you come from, that was the rest of the 40% for me. So that, it wasn't until I felt physically well enough to consider all of that. I wasn't feeling safe because of my relationship. I wasn't feeling safe because of my health. I always felt like my body was a ticking time bomb. And because I'd have so many injuries, I was on high alert all the time. The way that my mind processes, because like I've been kicked in the face by a horse. Like when I tell you I've had really extreme injuries, I mean it. But that patterned a hypervigilance that my mind, when I see things, will create the worst case scenario to protect me of don't do that because that sharp edge and this way the steps are and whatever, which is a gift sometimes. And sometimes it can make me really paranoid or anxious. Uh, you know, if I'm with my grandkids, if I'm with my family, if I'm with my nieces and nephews, my mind is already calculating what bad things can happen. So I had to do mindset work around that so that it wasn't running in the background all the time. Your brain takes the majority of your body's resources when it's hyperactive like that. So it's draining your energy. It's using your carbohydrates. It's sucking in all your water because your brain uses most, especially for the fraction of percentage of your body weight and mass that it is, it can consume most of it as a single organ, right? So as you get into this, step one, if you want to make shifts, has to be your diet, has to. And we don't want to. The truth is with food, quite often food is a symbol and an exhibition of love. So if you share meals with your spouse or going out for ice cream, you're going to feel lost by not having that. And no wonder your spouse isn't going to feel supportive. They are losing a symbol of love. Because when kids are good, we give them candy. When kids are good, they get dessert. If you're bad, you don't get dessert. So if we're taking your foods that you love away, you're being punished. So for your spouse or partner, if they're losing that connection with you, they're being punished. So their mind can cook up all sorts of rationalizations of why what you're doing isn't gonna work. And quite honestly, people aren't educated um, on nutrition, the impacts of inflammation, um, environmental impacts like mold. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many that I start with compassion. I start with where are they right now? And if your spouse isn't going to, right? Cause if you're struggling right now, you can't think clearly brain fog, fatigue, you're not going to be able to rationalize and hold space for your partner to have these conversations yet. We are big proponents, big supporters of what we call a life team. You must have 
at least three people in your life that you can be fully honest, that you can communicate what you need, that can be supportive of you and what you're doing because they care about the be- your, I don't, not betterment, because again, I'm not big on using words that create hierarchy or again, to compare. But if they are supportive of what you believe is going to expand or lower your thresholds of pain, give you more vitality, you need to have a life team. So you might join an online community, right? A Facebook community so that you feel connected, so that you feel supported, so that that isn't the responsibility of your partner. You're going to have to come up with a plan. You're going to have to say, okay, I recognize that my partner, spouse, parent, children are not on board with this. So what do I need from other places for me to feel supported? That's taking empowered action. And I assure you, once you get from either pain, fatigue, whatever, of a threshold of a 10 down to a six, you start to conceive it's possible that you could one day be pain-free. You start to actually consider that as a potential reality for you. And once you hit that five, man, your body is, you can feel it. It's like you're finally seeing the sun coming up after the darkest night you've ever had. You know, some call it the dark night of the soul. It's like you're finally seeing that sunrise. And then that's when you decide. Up until then, it was more of a fear of loss. If I don't, here's all the things I'll lose, like my life. Once you hit that five, it's a ramp up, man, because then you see what's possible. Then you see like, holy cow, I never considered that pain-free could be possible. Now that I'm at a five, now I can see that it's possible. That's when you start having the capacity to hold space for those conversations, to sit down with a partner and go, look, this is really important to me. Here's what I need from you. Here's why I need it from you. And here are the terms if I don't get what I need from you. And that's the the scary part of conversations most people don't want to have. Because then it goes back to the shame guilt device of that could mean I would have to leave this relationship. And then I'm failing. And then there's the shame guilt of doing it wrong. And back to the religion, back to the family, back to that pulls all that potential into. So I tell people, stay present, recognize that you're getting, you were at a 10 and now you're at a seven. You're still sliding in the right direction, but you have to find ways to quantify, identify, and track what's coming up for you. Emotionally, stress, financially. I created a book that I just called my body book where I had a little anatomical, not even anatomical, just a little like stick figure body that every day I would mark where the pain and discomfort was not to focus on the pain, to track what days were worse, what I ate, what my stressors were between zero and 10. What's my financial stress, emotional stress, family stress, work stress. And I became like the mad scientist of my experience. I started to approach it with curiosity instead of confusion and fear. And that is not easy. It's the only way to do it in my perspective and stay on track is really avoiding those those landmines of shame and blame because those throw you into the spiral. Oh, I messed up. I had ice cream today and I know I can't have dairy because of inflammatory responses. 
now there's something wrong with me. I failed. I'm bad. Back in the spiral of guilt and shame, destruction. So coming up with a life team to help keep you out of those spirals or to remind you like, dude, it's just a bowl of ice cream. Get back on track tomorrow. Clean it back up. You've got this. You're doing awesome. You've got to have a life team. If it's not your spouse, a friend, a coach, I mean, that's the beauty of having coaches too. Having that person, you know, that is, has got your back, that tells you you got this. And sometimes that is the trade-off. So it's talking to your coach or your doctor or your practitioner to come up with a plan. I've had times with clients, I'm like, text me if you're feeling down. That's not part of the contract, but I care more about the outcome and results that if I need to pop on with you for five minutes because you're feeling guilt and shame and you don't want to go into the spiral, let's come up with a plan because you will end up there at some point. So life team, whether it's hired, whether it's contracted, whether it's in home, the beauty of having someone that you're paying one you're probably gonna show up because you're investing your finances. Two, you're more likely to show up for a lot of people because you've made the commitment time-wise, it's on the calendar, especially since so many people work virtually now. Three, to have someone that works with people all the time to be like, look, I had another client that did this. Hang in here for two more months. Look at, look at the metrics we're seeing. Look at your blood sugar. Look, we already got you off blood pressure medications. We're headed in the right direction so that you can be reminded you're awesome, that you can be reminded that there's nothing wrong with you. There might be things that are dysfunctional and sure we can supplement some things, but supplementation, all of it in the world is not going to save you from some of these subconscious beliefs and ways of functioning. And stay in the one at a time, one step at a time, the pain threshold or the vitality getting from a 10 to an eight, an eight to a seven, a seven to a six and stay on track. And I think that might be like the longest I've talked in one space in an interview in a long time, but it all felt really important. So, you know, and I'm so grateful for the work that y'all do. Um, I didn't have a coach or a mentor, which is why it took me 20 years. Had I had the resources that I have now, I mean, I can get people through my same situation in two years that took me 20. Two years is still not a short period of time, but in the context of 20, whoops, my ring even said so. That was nice and loud. Just to make sure you were listening. <laughs> that is a 20th of the time. So how I can tell you I've invested a lot more in 20 years than anyone has on a program. Yeah. You know, we do um, make it a point to educate people that it does take time to heal. And, uh, you know, there are many individuals that we feel it may be a two or three year process, uh, but let's just start you in a year so that you can see how much progress you make in a year. I guarantee you, you're going to want to go for that second year if that's what you really need, or even that third year. Um, and I too will go into my story and, and let people know, you know, that it took me around five years. And I mean, if you look at the entire picture, it took sure. me around 10 years too. But once I started that uphill trend, 
uh, which as we all know, healing is not an uphill linear thing. It's very curvy. But once I started on that, on that part of my journey, that part alone took about five years. And, and so, you know, what it took me five years to do once I got on track and under with understanding what I needed to do, uh, even bits and pieces, because I didn't have the whole picture at that time. You know, it took me about five years. And, and um, I love how you talk about the life team. I love how you talk about food. I know Anne loves that. I saw Anne really, you know, smile. I could feel your energy in there because, you know, Anne is our lead nutrition coach and lifestyle mm-hmm. coach. Um, you know, we've, we've really come in and done something that nobody else in the, in the health and wellness industry is doing where we, we are, um, uh, someone this weekend um, at the mastermind that I was at uh, told me, you know, you're really disrupting the industry because we have um, this life team approach. And I, I hadn't even thought about using that term, but we have that life team approach because when people come work with us, they're not working with one coach. They have a team of three to four coaches. Like they have an entire team of coaches working with them from every aspect from their um, emotions and conscious and subconscious thought patterns that may or may not be serving them to lifestyle and foods, you know, their diet, to their biochemistry and neurochemistry, getting into all the biology of their body. Um, and then even coming in from the top and working on how the environment is, is, a, is, is affecting their genetic systems to work for them or against them. And so, you know, we've got an entire like life, uh, you know, life family here for them. And I love how you, I, I love how you talked about that. I mean, look, it's the difference between um, running or walking where you're going. I had spent enough time in pain. I was like, I'm out of here, out. I'm not doing this anymore. So I went all in. That isn't the way for everyone. I, and I acknowledge that and I honor that. If it, it really is doing what you can and just staying on the course, even a degree of difference over the course of three years, you are not in the same place, even remotely you would have been. And it is easy to say, just change your diet, just change your diet. But the, again, it goes back to the intricacies of human emotion and recognizing that you know people get angry if you take food away because they aren't protecting the food. It's not about the food. It's their relationship to the food and what the food represents. So for one person, that you know, coffee cake that they love to have every single day is a representation of having coffee with their father in the morning for the 30 years, you know, before they lost him or whatever the case was. So it, it's not, it's as a practitioner saying it's not about the food. And it, that, and as a human, when someone's projecting their anger at me, it's not about me. It is whatever they're trying to protect. It's whatever they're afraid of losing. And it has nothing to do with me. I can trigger that, whether it's their projection of what they believe that I'm doing or I am doing. So it's when you can take that step back as someone that has done the work that isn't in fight or flight the majority of the time, at least to be able to step back and and seeing anger as a protective mechanism for hurt. What's hurting? What are they protecting? As someone that's eating the foods, having self-compassion and saying, what's really behind my connection to this? What am I afraid I'm going to lose, let go of, or what will it mean if I no longer have this thing. And until you ask yourself those questions, the likelihood you're gonna stay successful on any nutritional plan, on any fitness plan, on any workout plan, is not as high. If you hate to run and you've decided for whatever reason, running's the best thing, there's no way you're gonna to stick to it. Willpower 
never lasts. Never, ever. Except for maybe Tom, my husband, but no one else I've ever met <laughs> stays on top with sheer willpower. Again, why having the life team? And identifying there's lots of other ways to move. There's lots of other ways to eat. It's not about losing things you love. It's finding more things that you love. This is actually an expansion of things that you love, not a loss of things that you love. And if you're perceiving everything in a lack mentality, that's a great place to start. Why, what is it or where is it coming from, this feeling of deficit? That if I lose this food, then I won't have enough goodness in my life. I won't have enough reward. I won't have the dessert, right? Create new desserts. Maybe the new dessert is just something different. And there are amazing alternatives for pretty much everything at this point. Um, like I'm beyond thrilled to be having everything bagels that are gluten-free and not filled with a bunch of junk. They're still bagels, so don't get it twisted. There's still, you know, not ideal things in it. Um, but if I'm going to have an everything bagel, now I am going to have it. So it's just don't give up or do give up, come back, get that team. Do the best that you can. And you know, I'm not going to say do the best that you can because that is a trap. Just love yourself. Be, and if you can't love yourself, if you're not there yet, imagine what a person who loves themselves would do, would say, maybe you've seen it before, maybe you haven't, maybe you start by Googling, how do I know if I love myself, right? All of those things are a practice. So start with self-compassion. And that just might be looking yourself in the mirror and being like, I'm so impressed by you. I love how much you've overcome. I love how much you love the kids. I love how you gave the dog a haircut. I love, you know, just finding a few things every day. Look yourself in the mirror and appreciate about yourself. Being able to look at yourself and maybe you can't do it about something individually, about something specific. And just saying, you know, I really appreciate that I finished the dishes before I went to bed last night because I got up this morning and that made me feel amazing. It was already done. That was something for you. You feel amazing. Starting with things anything that you can identify to recognize, to find compassion, to find love and know that it's a journey. And like you said, Dr. V, it's not only, um, not only is, a, is it not linear, this process, it is, I see it as almost like a cyclical spiral moving upwards, we'll say. So things you thought you healed will come back again in about five years because there was another perspective or layer or element that is ready now for you to look at. So you might change your diet just to come back around to find out like, oh, the reason I can't give up coffee is because I used to have coffee with my father every day. And if I let go of coffee, even though for me particularly may not be serving me right now, I feel like I'm losing him. So now you're ready to come back to not only the nutritional element, but actually the emotional element in that cyclical process. You know, I wanted to share, I had a client this morning who She's been working with us for about seven to eight months and she's in her seventies and she made the comment to me and, and it reminded me of it when, when you were saying something similar, she is in a really good place right now where she feels really good. And she made the comment to me this morning that she never imagined when she started this process with us 
that she would feel as good as she feels now. She thought she was too old to feel this good again mm -hmm. in the 70s. And now she's looking forward to a hiking trip with her grandkids next week. And she said, in the past, I would have I would have worried about that trip in the days before saying, well, I hope I feel okay and I hope I can make it. And she said, now those things aren't even on, on my mind. I'm just excited yeah. about being able to go hike with my grandkids. And I, I thought it was so powerful. We were both in tears. And when you made the comment in your story about how you never imagined you could get to that place where you feel good again. And I think a lot of our clients who are hesitant to start in the beginning is that's one of the reasons they don't they can't imagine that they could actually feel as good as they want to feel but it is possible yeah you know sometimes it's just putting yourself in an environment where you hear it over and over again i didn't know that either i didn't believe that either and here i am and here i am we grow up seeing that aging means it gets worse we see as people get older they fall apart people may be living longer they're not living fuller than they were. And I mean that as far as vitality, right? So, and I mean, this virus is a perfect example, you know, what, what's been going on. The people that have been most impacted are the ones that are already not well. So yes, older, and even our belief that older means that the body breaks down in the perception that we believe it does is only a belief. If you go to our Instagram page, talk hole, and scroll back a ways, my husband, Ta, when you see pictures of him in his mid-30s, looked like he was nearing 50. And now that he is almost 50, he looks like he is in his mid-30s. And people ask him if he's a vampire because since they saw him last, he looks younger. Stress brings more wrinkles, changes how you eat. And if you aren't using it, you are losing it. And I never knew what it was like to be pain-free. So I couldn't even say, I can't imagine it getting back to where it was. There was no was. There was only the degradation of my body. And it, in my belief, everything in my life would be great and it, except my body. And if I was having an amazing day, I was waiting for the migraine. I was waiting for the whatever to come along and ruin it, right? So it was more that I, it's just, I couldn't believe it you know, like it's just not even something that I could imagine. So for anyone listening, if you felt that way, um, share that story. If you felt that way and now you feel amazing, I think that it's a story that if we were to share more, to normalize it, to make it a more common outcome, I assure you that the more that we can see and be exhibitors of vitality and human optimization and wellness, those become the champions for the change and transformation that this world needs to have on multiple levels, but on a health perspective, what good is living longer if you're going to spend the last 10 years in a nursing home where you can't feed yourself? That is not a future that I will participate in by whatever means possible. So for me to ensure that I'm going to live my life, treat my body, the people around me in a way that gives me life. I'm not trying to not die. And most people are doing what they can to not die. They'll wear a mask. They won't change their food. They will not let their children go out to play, but they're overwhelmed. The children are there. They are creating an environment that is a breeding ground for toxicity.
which includes viruses. So I am here to open, expand vitality, and optimize the way that my body performs, not avoid death. When you avoid death, you stay just a couple steps ahead of it. And that's not, that's not, I did that for 26 years. I can mark that, check that off as complete. And that's why now I'm so committed to, well, now I don't help people do the same. That's what you do. After people realize like, holy cow, I'm at that four, right? I have now surpassed that threshold. I want to help other people do that. What else in my life? I'm at 90%. You guys get people up to that 70%. And then they come to me and go, man, I'm almost there. There's just these little things that are kind of getting in my way. These little pains that are ticking up inside of my body. These stressors that are coming up in my body that I don't believe in consciously, but my body is still showing signs. I'm, help, I'm there to just turn that dial up the rest of the way because you believe it. And if it wasn't for the work that y'all do, I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do, which is why I'm so grateful for it because I assure you, and I've said it multiple times on this, once you get to that six out of 10 of pain or discomfort or fatigue or whatever, you start to go, oh, okay, there's something to this diet thing. There's something to this boundary thing. I didn't realize that by saying no, I wouldn't get migraines anymore to get me out of going to make dinner for the Boy Scouts group. Wow. I didn't realize that every time I really don't want to do something like deeply, but I feel like I should, that I get a headache or I get too tired or my arthritis kicks up or whatever. It is all connected. And until you can really see that, uh, nothing's going to change. And we're so grateful for you too. You know, all of that is so true. And the work that you do really does round out and complete the work that we do. Um, and, uh, you know, we're so grateful for that because that, you know, that final part of the of that initial journey, because the journey's never over, right? But that final part of the initial stuff, you know, where you can just really dial it in and and turn it up, you know, as far as, you know, the uh, psychological mindset, you know, conscious and subconscious, you know, really, really helping people to be able to learn that for themselves and understand how to, how to identify these things um, that have been holding them back or taking them back into old patterns or, you know, making them sick in the first place. You know, there's, um, that's, uh, that's the ultimate, you know, mm -hmm. for me, I mean, I see that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I would love for you to share with everyone how they can reach you. Uh, because, uh, there may be some people listening who are, who, you know, know in their hearts that this has really resonated with them and they know in their hearts that they're ready to, uh, you know, to contact somebody like you who can help them. Sure. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's a resonance in our body when something makes sense to us. And it's not even about the what we're hearing. There's a feeling to what we are hearing that tells us if we want to reach out. And I invite someone to reach out for any reason, working with me, not working with me, wanting direction, wanting perspective, wanting no what books did you read? Where did you start? I'm happy to share resources like that because it is a, it's a lot that we are 
compartmentalizing into a very specific topic currently. But as far as getting, uh, getting in touch, you can go to tahcole.com, which is T-A-H, like Utah without the U. K is in kite, O-L-E, tahcole.com or tahcole on Instagram. I'm really good at responding at messages there. Um, and look, you know, by the time someone's coming to me, they're not looking for help anymore. They're looking to live. Um, they now know how good everything is. It's, it's what is still there that I'm not fully receiving. Like I see the magic I've created. I see how far I've come. I see how alive I feel. I'm looking now to be able to fully embody the realization that I did it, that celebration. Like intellectually, I get it and I can kind of give myself breaks sometimes, but I'm still working as if I haven't, right? And that doesn't mean we stop working. It means you no longer are driven by the need to change. You just realize that you are the expansive being that's been changing the whole time. So that's really the when to, to contact that optimize. And, and right now, uh, Ta and I are focusing uh, primarily, not only, but primarily around the topics of racism um, from the perspective of inclusion and how racism shows up in the body. Uh, whether or not we realize it, we are participating in old systems. Like I talked about throughout this whole thing, I've been referring to societal conditionings like family and television and media. Racism is another construct that we are all participating in consciously and unconsciously. That does not make someone a racist. A racist is a person that is intentionally hurting someone of a different race, right? Or judging or belittling or excluding. So where we're coming from is from the point of inclusion. So it's how to include voices in conversation, how to understand the construct of racism and how it impacts you on a day-to-day -day basis, how your bias has you making decisions without you knowing. As I've spoken for the last hour, it's bringing awareness. And the ideas of constructs, regardless of what context you learn it in, racism, family, religion, all have the same core structures in how they show up in the nervous system, how they show up in the body, and how to deconstruct, bridge more conversations, and really get into more of a counseling culture, as my friend Kadu says, instead of a canceling culture. Because whether it's health, wellness, racism, religion, unless we have the uncomfortable conversations and find that deep compassion for ourselves and for others, nothing will change. So that is the current context that my focus is in and Taz, my husband is in. So if that resonates for you, cool. Otherwise we do quarterly events that you can come with us for whatevs, whatever you want to talk about, discuss, you know, just book a call, go to talkhole.com, read through it, hit me up. And we just book a call. There's no charge for the call. Let's talk. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cole, for coming on. And uh, we're, of course, going to invite you again in the future because we just love talking to you and getting your insight. I think it's so valuable um, for everyone listening, for our clients who are listening as well. It's really valuable to hear the perspective and the place that you come from. So thank you again for taking the time and, and sharing all of this with us today. My pleasure. Until we are self-empowered uh, nothing changes, right? So 
I'm all about anything to support the empowerment of individuals for the collective. Yes, absolutely. Cheers to self-empowerment. That's so amazing. Um, again, we want to thank you for joining us. We can't wait to have you back. And for those of you who joined us today on Tribe Talk, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to what we have to share with you. And we hope that you got to take away some really great pearls today. And we will see you next week on Tribe Talk. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yay. Thank you so much. Yay. I was like, you. that's a lot in one episode, but I think they can handle it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a lot. But, you know, I think sometimes when the topics, di you know, when the topics diverge and kind of go in different directions, it, it can, you know, for some people, it, it keeps them engaged too. Totally. For too long, people will sometimes, you know, kind of start wandering in their head. Yes. So I think it worked out. Yeah, for me, for me, if I'm listening to something, as long as everything keeps coming back to some like... Yeah. Cross. So anytime I'd be like, wow, I just went for like five minutes. Okay. Let me actually reintroduce how that applies. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was so perfect. And everything you said was just so perfect. And I want to thank you again. I love you so much and um, thank you. So, yeah. And I will say like your skin, your face, how relaxed you look is quite yeah. noticeable. <laughs> really? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I love you guys so much. All right. Well, we're going to go and get our get some of our stuff done today. And um, I'll, uh, I'll reach out to you about my glasses. If I don't get a chance to pop back over there, then, you know, just save them for me. They're not going anywhere. I've got like five pairs of these things in all different shapes nice. and colors. So it's not a big deal. Good. I'm glad you had extras. So. Yeah. All right. Love you guys. See you. Love you. Have a beautiful day. Bye. You too.